Episode 244 of the No Persinium Podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro Studio in Los Angeles, a.k.a. The Kitchen Table. This week on the show, we've got Michael Tara Garver of Category 41, the head of experiential entertainment over there at Cat 41. Michael is a, is a friend of the show, has been on a couple of times now. She was originally scheduled to be our Horizon speaker, our, our final keynote speaker, on Saturday, March 28th for the Here Summit and Festival. Of course, that got postponed. But what we've got for you um, is the AMA that we held over the Here Discord on that Saturday. So this is going to be an episode, and it starts off a bit like a traditional podcast, although recorded remotely. And then we're going to bring people in uh, to ask questions. And Catherine is managing the uh, the AMAQ. Um, a couple of, of, of you know housekeeping things to do uh, before we get into the interview here, uh, I, and I may do some talking on on the back end. I'm I'm gotta admit right now I'm not feeling very chatty at the moment. So lucky you, just just uh, does an episode, particularly an episode where uh, more Michael than me. So uh, there you go, uh, the, the the one you always dreamed of, the one where Noah's kind of quiet. Okay, uh, the Patreon. Let's uh, let's let's slide in on that real quick. Uh, just a quick update because we do have some new backers. Uh, I want to thank uh, Deborah Lamack, Tom Henley, uh, Corin and Wicks, uh, all for joining up this week, and uh, to Laura Hess, who's actually joining our, our LA writing team. It's always kind of embarrassing when one of the writers does it. <laughs> embarrassing is the wrong word. It's very flattering. I feel guilty, but it's very flattering. Hence, uh, since, since that's where the embarrassment comes from. It's, it's guilt. Um, uh, but anyway, Laura Huss, who's a really good writer, uh, she's, uh, she upped her pledge uh, this month as well. And our sustaining backers, as always, are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Sidney Guillory, Jeremy Charles Hahn, and Brittany uh, we're, we're holding steady so far, obviously, um, there's, there's, we, we just need more money. Always. Oh, that's what was going to be always the case. And, uh, and the longer everything's on pause, uh, the more that becomes, uh, real anyway. Uh, let's set up this just a tiny bit for you. Who is Michael Tara Garver? Uh, she's going to explain her career a bit at the start anyway, so I'm not going to go too in depth. She's been on the show before. Um, she's been uh, completely influential in how we think about this work. Uh, and by we, I mean all of us here at No Persinium, but also I think people in the field in general. It comes to immersive and experiential. Michael's worked in so many capacities on so many projects, both uh, in commercial art and activist art and just marketing activation. Like if there's an aspect to this work, uh, she's done it at this point. Comes out of Chicago theater, teaches at NYU, is now head of experiential at a new firm in Los Angeles. Michael's, Michael's the person, which is why 
she so we tapped to do the Horizon speech at the end of the Saturday. And indeed, she will come around, and we're going to get into a little bit of that where she saw things going. Obviously, the world keeps on changing, and it's fluid. Um, it's changing fluid anyway, but, um, th- th- you know, the point being, this was recorded on March 28th. Uh, that's like about a little under two weeks ago, to like be two weeks ago tomorrow when I'm recording this. And, you know, it feels like the world's changed even a lot since then. Um, that's just like the nature of it and the case of it. And yeah. Um, okay. Let's dive into this. I hope you enjoy it. And I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? I can. So, hey, Michael. So, Hi. This hello. is so cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been, it's been kind of nice, um, is, is one word for it. I think that we'll, uh, when we finally do the thing for real, uh, we'll have at least one day where we just require everyone to be in pajamas. We'll just be like, oh, let's, oh my uh, God. I feel like I have a new pajama look. Like, it's like, I think we're all like, you know, finding our pajama style, which is great. Yeah, I mean, I I already work from home so much that I have like three different pajama modes. So, but I think, uh, yeah, the the Sunday of the of the IRL conference will uh, will be pajama day. So, not required. I'm not requiring anybody, but I'm definitely going to do it. So maybe I'll maybe I'll get a special onesie for the day. That'd be nice. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm excited. God. I'll say like the amount of times we've talked about the uh, the the time when we will all be together i think it'll feel even like more amazing when we're all in live space together you know yeah and, and doing it then as well <laughs> this one, is a I, mean, I mean one of the fun things is there's there's folks who you know i haven't met at one of the previous events that, that we've been a part of uh who we've now met online like uh, I'm thinking of Manera, who works for Meow Wolf in Las Vegas, uh, and I'm like, oh, I really want to like hang out, you know? Yeah. So like I'm already getting that like, oh, there's like here's my here's my Twitter friends, right? You know, like back when Twitter was not a, a hellscape, um, you know, it's it's like it's like going from like, you know, talking with Kent by on Twitter to like talking with him in San Francisco or in like China, like it's 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 very different, uh, IRL. But we can't do IRL today. Uh, so we're doing this for those who don't know you, Michael, um, could you just kind of give like the 50,000 foot view of, you know, (laughs) your, your storied (laughs) career at this point? (laughs) Uh, That's a great intro. Um, let's see. Uh, so I've been in this, what I would call experiential field for two decades. Um, uh, I call myself an experiential architect. Um, there are many ways that I've been a part of the field and I can talk about them ad nauseum. I've been working on a lot of stuff, but um, I started, I ran a theater company in Chicago called Uma Productions. Uh, we did immersive productions and immersive theater about 20 years ago. Um, and what's crazy about that is my original managing director from UMA, John Ferris, who then ran Writers Theater for a long time, is now the director of production for the experiential entertainment studio I run in uh, Los Angeles. So I ran an immersive theater company. I was doing marketing. Then I, you know, just uh, I did a podcast recently that was talking about like the craziness of how our field being in this field comes together because it's been I've done everything from made the Museum of International Drug Policy to the Black Label Bacon Strip 
show uh, to um, being commissioned by organizations to make massive experiential new content with undocumented creators around post offices. Um, and so I'm obsessed with this field and what we do and us learning about it and the ecosystem. And as I think um, Noah mentioned, or I don't know if we mentioned yet, but like I was here to talk about a vision for our, the vision I have of our, I think we all can have of our future. And obviously right now that feels like a crazy thing to talk about, but um, one of the things that happened in the last year or two years, I launched a studio called 13EXP. 13EXP um, holds 13 pieces of IP all um, uh, created by women, uh, POC and LBGTQ, and was really, and am still very committed to how we make sure in our field that the original content that starts to come out more and more across platforms, both digital and live, um, has a range of voices at the helm. Uh, so I launched 13EXP and have been a huge part as much as I can of No Proscenium and running around and writing things and making things. And then uh, I met a, um, some leadership at a company called Category 41 that was launching. Um, and uh, about a year ago, they said, hey, we're going to actually, what I had envisioned for a long time is that we needed, that we were a field basically made of commercials, not of, um, not of TV shows, right? It's like, we didn't have TV studios. We just had uh, TV commercial studios and we all were making those or we were making things on a shoestring budget. And I believed we needed to figure it out. And so, um, and then, you know, early on, I was an associate director, a staff director on Sleep No More. And I've worked all around the country and all these things, but I believed that we needed an entertainment studio that held a broad range of developing different kinds of immersive experiential work. And, um, Category 41, the, the leadership starting came to me and said, hey, we want you to be our the head of our studio, the head of experiential entertainment. And I was like, I've heard that these things, you know, like everybody's been saying that for years. Our field is growing because there's money going into it. And um, they meant it. And a year later, January this year, um, I moved to Los Angeles from New York and I brought with me um my two full-time staff members who were also hired. And then we hired John and it's an amazing team of a ton of people, but basically we're building an experiential entertainment studio um, now during a pandemic, which is super fascinating um, and great. And um, it's uh, so you can all look at my website. I'm not flag. I'm not like advertising myself, michaelterragarver.com to see all the things I've done. Right. But I actually think more interesting to me is, is um, I've been on this crazy journey and I, I believe we are still and are the forefront of where what the future holds. Um, so, yeah, so that's a little about me. I don't know if that was a great intro, but uh, yeah, done a bunch of things, a lot of things, been busy. I, I think that covers a lot of the bases and I think, I think we need to <laughs> drill down into some of it. Uh, just so everyone knows the AMAQ is open. So I'm going to keep on asking questions until there's like at least two in there so we can get the flow going. Um, I, there's, we were originally planning to have you give that horizon talk, um, yeah. uh, which uh, is, is, well, anyway, um, I was about to give something away, but we were originally having you going to do the horizon talk, the, the end of Saturday, sort of our last big new formal talk until we did sort of the relaxed day uh, that was going to be Sunday. 
so maybe kind of could you could you roll back your brain uh, to pre-pandemic a little bit and and give a snapshot of of what it was you were thinking about our future. Uh, well, you know, not even that. And eh, let's not even do that. Let's. Let, you've been thinking about the future a bit. You know, yeah. Before then, you're thinking about the future now. Uh, I'm really interested in. Um, you know, you're running around doing your work right now. You continue to prep up the studio. You know, what's the tenor right now? Mm-hmm. What's what's the what's is is there is there a flicker of hope? Because yeah. uh, I mean, things look, are kind of really yeah, at the moment. Well, I think there's a couple of things, right? Like the first thing I would say is I believe our field is bigger, is at times bigger than we give it credit for. We are filled with um, amazing, incredible, resourceful creatives. We are not creatives who we had a path where it was A plus B plus C and then you do a thing. We're creatives who have been curious and rigorous about what it is to have multiple journeys with audience. And we've been exploring that and investigating that for decades, for generations, right? Like this is not a new field. The 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 thing that makes this us a field now is that two things. One, we are defining ourselves as one and we're trying to figure that out. And two, money is coming into it. And so th- those are the two things that at a certain point suddenly you're a field. But it's made up, and this is one of the biggest learnings I feel like I'm putting out while being in Los Angeles, it's made up of hugely resourceful people. We are people who are multi-hyphenate. You can talk to an amazing person, person and experiential who can hang a light, write a script, is curious about how pencils might work in coding. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like I've, I, do, I have been drawn to this field because it lets me forever be curious. And so if, you know, the hopefulness for me is that we are still curious. Uh, I am hopeful to sit here and see how many people are online right now wanting to have this conversation um, today. I think we're going to have days in the next month or so that are hard. And I'm watching my colleagues and friends in massive theater companies having to let go of people. I'm watching that happen. I'm also watching the resourcefulness of my friends and colleagues. And so one of our our strengths as a field is our adaptability, our malleability, our our scale. You know, I think of experiential and would have said this. Experiential reflects is you know any good art form. It is reflecting back to us what it is to be human. Now, we listened to radio and gathered around radio because it reflected back to us what it is to be human. Now, we gathered around television because it gathered around it, it reflected back to us what it is to be human. Now. We're going to be asking the question, what is it to be human now? And how do we make things that are across many platforms and both have live experiences and digital experiences connected, which that aren't advertising each other? Um, And I think that like in that way, it is an exciting time. In that way, it is it is a hard time. It is a time to make sure you're checking in on your friends and colleagues. But it's, um, I believe the hardest part is if we keep our vision of who we are as a field small. And I believe that when you look at entertainment, people are going to come out the other side of this needing each other. And we will never again, maybe at least for the, my boss said this, for the next five to 10 years, I won't have to walk into a pitch room and say, 
you know, people need to be together because we have an entire moment right now that is double proving that over and over every day. Um, and so, you know, the thing is to be curious right now. It's to be super curious and to listen and to think about the different ways in which we as a field can adapt and connect and become a stronger ecosystem, not become bifurcated. Um, I think that's a that I think that's kind of my hopefulness. Um, yeah. All right. <laughs> I think we're I think we've we've got the first couple of questions in. So uh Catherine, uh do you wanna do you wanna start rocking and rolling on that side of the world? Yeah. So first up we've got Jeremy from Dino Lion. Jeremy, please ask your question and unmute yourself. Hi Jeremy. I didn't uh, my bad. I apologize. I didn't realize I was gonna get to talk talk. Hi, thank you. Um uh, my question is quick. In what ways um, is your company on the forefront that maybe differentiates it from how other people are innovating? Um, I think part of it um, is how I've always seen um, thinking about experiential, right? So uh, we are a company, a global experience company. So I come from 13XP, which was my studio, which the work I've developed all along has been, again, that experiential can be durational. It can start with a podcast and then lead to a live experience. It's also about craft. And I think the way that we're innovating and the way that we continue to innovate is asking the question, how can people show up as who they really are? And how do we reach out to different audiences so um, they can show up as they who they really are? Um, I think that when a field starts to grow, which is great, we there's a lot of people learning by replicating things they've seen before. And I'm not interested in the replication. I'm interested in the experiments. And so I've been fortunate enough along the way to write for grants and get funding to do a lot of different experiments in the field. Like, let's see what happens if I've got 20 writers in a room, but half those writers are technologists and half those writers are designers. And I forgot another half, but a third or third or third. And um, what that's done is it's meant that the thinking and making allows for innovation in the thinking in, in how we relate to an audience. Um, and I think the innovation also comes with you with the question of who is the audience and how, what, is the, what is the relationship we want to build with them um, and, and allowing not every project and not everything is for everyone, not, um, and not, uh, and, and, and what that looks like is varied. It looks like, how do we go beyond, um, you know, the, the huge success of Museum of Ice Cream is not because of the word museum, it's because of ice cream and people want to get closer to ice cream, it's fun. So how do we, and they've made it fun, but how do we go deeper and give people the next level of art interactions and experiences? And how do we, integrate story, deep, deep narrative levels of story into what we do. Um, sorry, Jeremy, I, I'm, I'm trying to also think about like how to answer that question without being able to say like, here are the seven things we're doing. Um, and I think the other way I think about innovation is I work with people who are in the visual art field, in the social justice field, in all across different fields. And all of those ideas are a part of how we are being live in the world. 
rolling on to the next because I think I think the next question might uh, might follow up pretty well on that. Catherine, go for it. Yeah, go ahead, Manera. Hi. So I quickly looked at your website and noticed that you said social impact was in your DNA, and I wanted to know more about that. Um, so, uh, I think there's a couple of ways that I look at it. Um, so a, a couple of things, right. If again, as I said, we're like multifaceted people who come into this field and, um, early on in my early twenties, I think I thought there were different parts of my life. Um, there was the part of my life where I made immersive theater and explored audiences. There's the part of my life where I paid my bills doing marketing for a series of small businesses. And then there was a part of my life where I was really engaged in how we made change and social justice work and social justice change. And as I've gotten older, all of those things and all of those tools have entwined. And um, that has allowed me to be in some pretty incredible rooms with some pretty incredible leaders and artists. Um, I got a fund last year, 13XP, which I launched, which was, um, which still exists, which is, uh, again, has 13 pieces of IP representing women, POC, LBGTQ, original IP. Um, and going out into the world with that, uh, I was funded by an organization called Pop Culture Collaborative. And through that fund, I have been able to collaborate and work with the Domestic Workers Alliance and Color of Change to figure out how our experiential tools help them tell their stories better. Um, I worked and supported an amazing group of activists in the Women's, in the women's March. Um, and I think a lot about how, you know, one of the challenges of our field is when we come into disuse spaces, we are, we are co-opting culture, we are co-opting space. And so how, instead of us coming in and arriving somewhere, do we build from inside out? Do we engage and make sure that the work we're making comes from where we are, who we are, and that, that may not look like the people um, who you already have in your team, and that may not sound that way. And, and how do we broaden the way that we think about who we are as makers, if we want to broaden the way we think about who we are as audience. Um, a good friend of mine and kind of amazing leader in the field who was supposed to speak, uh, and I'm sure we'll be back again, is Jeffrey Jackson Scott. And um, I have always loved a phrase he coined, which is, um, for a long time in the theater field, community engagement was a part of the thing. And no one wants to be engaged with. It's really false. It's community involvement. and. Um, and that's what matters. Uh, um, and so it means it takes longer because you have to actually be willing to let that part of it come into the space. Last year, I tr I, um, I designed the social impact track at um, uh, a convening, the, the former convening. Um, and uh, one of the things that was really fascinating, we did a deep dive with people in entertainment and experiential and all that is a lot of what we do is very similar to cultural campaigns. Um, I built a campaign this summer for the Just Mercy film that was an experiential campaign. And, and we're really thinking the way that campaigns do. And, and the biggest challenge right now is language. The biggest thing is our fear of being wrong. And, and so social impact being in my DNA means it came from the beginning and then it kind of got all wrapped up as I've gone all along. Um, I'm also realizing right now, which is an absurd sidebar, that I gesture a lot for those who know me, and I'm having a very hard time realizing I'm, I'm worried that like half of what I'm saying, I'm like gesturing through. So <laughs> uh, I apologize if for any lack of clarity. 
Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do that later, but yeah, that's, that's what I mean. There's a lot of ways to do it. There's a lot of ways. If, if you are interested, reach out to me. Also, there's a lot of organizations who can use our creative thinking as long as you enter that space with a sense of curiosity. I think I'm getting, maybe it's cause I know you, I think I'm able to follow what the gestures would be like your voice is conveying stuff. Uh, just <laughs> fine, it seems. I wanted, I wanted to follow up before you push on to the next one. I want to follow up a little bit on a, on a theme that came out. Um, you said things don't have to be for everyone. And I'm wondering as, as you're entering into this, this, larger scale, like it does some projects that get some, some money. How does the idea that things don't have to be for everyone square with the, the studio drive to reach the broadest audience and make the most money humanly possible? So look at Netflix, right? I mean, we have to, because we're all home. So we're doing a lot of looking at Netflix, but look at Netflix. Um, Netflix isn't winning because it's making content that is to be for all. It's winning because it is understanding that people want to be seen. And so it is, it has been for better or for worse, um, making masses of content with a massively diverse uh, slate of creators. And what that means is one of the biggest challenges I think with Netflix, right, is like the algorithm tells me that I am this person, therefore this is what I want to watch. And we have to be aware of that. And I actually think Experiential has the opportunity to intersect some of those algorithms and introduce you across what, you know, let's say Dear White People is not what was on my Netflix list automatically. It happens to be what I'm interested in. I'm interested in how we move people from different content to other content in the fact that our experiences intersect communities. So when I'm looking at making big scale work, and 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 now absolutely i think our bottom line is going to it is proven the bottom line has proven that if you if we do not hold to the same way that this work was made with the same authorship um and not imagine that for everyone means um it looks the same way as before we will we will succeed financially um, and so it's about looking at a slate. And I think the thing with category 41, that's been my dream that I'm getting to realize there is that I think one of the challenges for a lot of us is we were parts of organizations where, because we're trying to survive, there's maybe one aesthetic that is surviving within your, within your, um, within your making. And that aesthetic may be what you get really successful for that aesthetic, that way of being, um, you know, we're, we're almost, I think we're 10 years from Zen Sleep No More. I look at that project and I'm so proud of it every day and of what my friends who I got to support did and being a part of it early on in Boston, all those things. But I also know that those are artists who have a range of ways they're thinking of making things. And um, that aesthetic and that Sleep No More thing has been what has it seems to the public and to those who buy it that that's what that's what makes them it successful. It was the artists and the making at the core of it that made it successful. And if they were to make something else and it looked different and it didn't have masks, it could also be successful. And so having a studio which isn't from its beginning built off of one hit that has one way of being, I think is how we are we we start to think larger about our field and we can also be financially successful um and the last piece of that is i i, I would just say like 
we need to be building models that don't rest on ticket sales. Um, the, the, the film field, the theater field has learned that lesson over and over again. Let's not learn that lesson again here. Let's, let's take the lessons that have happened and be smarter. And what I mean by that is Netflix is a membership. Like what are different ways that we as an ecosystem can think about, you know, certainly how, how does money come in differently? And I think a lot about that. Um, I think a lot about ways brands want to integrate, ways people want to integrate further, um, all of those things. Um, so that's the other way is just thinking of the financial model as a part of the creative, not as separate. Not I've got to make good creative and then I'm going to sell tickets because it's going to be awesome. It's why do people spend money and, and what's going to drive them to do so? And how does spending money become a part of the of the creativity of the problem you're solving, not the the hope and dream. All right. Uh, folks, remember the AMAQ is there for you to load up your questions and get called on. So uh, treat it like uh, the line for the microphone. Uh, Catherine, uh, take us away into the queue. Yes. So uh, John Martin, calling John Martin to the microphone. Hi, John. Hi. Good morning. Just double checking you can hear me. I can hear you. Awesome. Um, so I, uh, my question is about um, in talking with other colleagues, especially ones that are coming from more traditional performance backgrounds like cinema and theater, um, who have told me many times that when they talk to somebody who introduces themselves like as a, a director, producer or something else, something else, they sort of tune out and figure that person's a, a bit of a dilettante and not a professional. Um, hmm. And I don't know if you've encountered this. And if so, uh, do you have any thoughts about how you frame the way um, you identify yourself as a maker to people um, so that they, they they really understand your your area or areas of expertise. Yeah, you're speaking, I mean, like, I don't, I think one of my associates or two of them are on here, like you are speaking the, one of the key things that um, I have matured more and more into, right? Which is a couple of things. And it's why, so I call myself an experiential architect, which um, basically was the first term I had that made sense to me, which talked about the larger thing of what I do. Um, but at its core, right, it's to me about you have to have a creative vision and and, and, a, um, and an ability to understand enough of what you don't know and what you do know about how things are made and be curious about those who do. Um, I've been in a lot of rooms. I've been in rooms at major, major corporations pitching to 100 people and winning those pitches and speaking to them. And I've been in rooms in with social impact leaders. And, I've, and, and a lot of what I try to do, I, I worry less about what my title is. I think more about, and, I, and actually like I've held to experiential architect as how I, a term that allowed me to think of myself. I was an immersive designer, an immersive director, a, Immersive consultant. I was a director. I was. I mean, I ran a program in um, at NYU at Tisch in uh, um, leadership, directing, and making. Right. And I would always say, actually, the point is not what your title is, unless that title helps the people in the room um, hear you in a different way. So, for example, for years, the last decade, I paid my bills doing a lot of client work for big brands and making crazy things. And I never said the word theater when I walked into a room. I said, live, 
I gave a talk once on live code. Do you know what live code is? It's staging theater. That's what it is. And like, you know, I, but when I was in, I was in a, a technology space and I translated, not because I'm translating at the core of what I do. I'm translating because I'm thinking about my audience and, and to be, give them credit. Like I'd rather look at it as, I don't think they look at us as professional because I think there are people who have not been professional in those roles. I've watched artists walk into professional spaces and think that the way to be is to say, is to be an artiste. And like, I don't think that's who artists are at their core. And, and so I think um, the answer really is about being, listening to the language that, that, that allows you to be in the conversation that's happening in the room. And when you challenge that language, challenging it with compassion. So somewhere about two years ago, the word the immersive theater became cool. And really what that meant is people wanted me to make sleep no more on a boat or sleep no more with masks on sushi or sleep no more in my car or whatever. And so I, I realized I, I couldn't use that word because I don't want to make sleep no more on a boat because they should call punch drunk. Um, so instead, I, I talked about theatrical story worlds, right? Like it is theatrical, but we're making story worlds and, and there are characters in them. And so I just think like it, you have to be open to the fact that people come to those misunderstandings of terms, honestly, and, and how, do we, how do we get to be better communicators versus like, no, what I do is important. And I, and I get that feeling. It is I definitely, if I'm in, if I've been in an Uber and someone asks what I do, there are moments where I just like sigh because I don't want to say it. Um, and then I try to figure it out because the better I get at communicating to anyone about it, the better we all get as a field. I want to, I want to stay on this, this issue of language for a second before we jump back into the queue, because it's something that I know that a lot of people have some anxiety around. Uh, and there's, there's questions of, we're in this multidisciplinary world. Do we need a lingua franca? Do we need like one common tongue? Do we need to codify it? Um, I always look at this from the perspective of someone who has made theater and has jumped through different modes of production. And, and you know, the lighting designers have their lingo. The sound designers have their lingo. You know, the the stage manager and director, they're the ones that kind of bring it all together and it kind of morphs from project to project. So I don't have too many anxieties around it, but I do understand that when it comes to, you know, pitching people, they kind of want to have a hook. Um, do, do you think we need a lingua franca or do you think that we're ultimately, as this space matures, we're going to get comfortable just talking in terms of a show, a story, yeah. uh, an episode, and just kind of get down to the basics? So there's a couple of things, right? So I think for better or for worse, I have been in a lot of spaces where it, a show doesn't actually mean, it doesn't help me to say those words, right? Like, I'm not saying you're suggesting it's those words, but like, I actually think that, yes, I think one of the things I, I have seen even harder for people who've come from a more traditional theater background is approaching this work the way a theater director would. Um, yes, we're used to collaboration, but, you know, there's a very different thing when I'm collaborating with a person who, from the beginning, is in the creating of the room from a community community involvement space, and they are as empowered as a lighting designer, empowered as an art director, 
and as empowered as the five writers, all of who speak different literal languages, right? Like I've made work that has five actual languages in it and, and more, right? And was built to make that. And so I actually think in that case, directing becomes um, creating an architecture that allows people to, it, it is both at first you're creating an architecture for the making, and then you're doing that to create an architecture for the making and the project to meet the audience. And it will meet the audience in a multitude of ways and it will meet the makers in a multitude of ways. So, so there's that, right? So there's a lot of language you need there. And, and I joke that my, probably my biggest strength is that I have no problem in those moments. I just did it the other day where I'll say, I know I'm just going to be the dumb person in the room here when I say this. So when you tell me I, I can get on my phone and it projects a thing and then I go into that room and then this happens, tell me what you actually mean. Like, or when you use these 17 technical languages and then you're saying integrating an actor, let me take it step by step. I want to say like, so then I film it. Nope, I don't film it. I jump up and down on my right foot. Cool. Now I know I jump up and down on my right foot. And so even in the making, I kind of try for myself to put myself in spaces where I don't understand. In the pitching, there's a couple of things. The most important, and I've said this, I said this three years ago when we all, on one of the, one on a panel I was on that was, that Noah was at, in which I think I got a lot of pushback on, which is the biggest thing we have to do is understand our value. And in the pitching, it's understand your value. And also, um, no one right now is going to want to make a show. And fr frankly, we shouldn't. We need to think about what we're doing that brings people together. That language, language around fandom, is going to serve both what you want to make and what what people want to fund. And so I don't think that a basic language is going to mean the same thing all the same time. Um, and I feel like I'm, again, not fully answering the question, Noah, but... Um, no, no. I mean, that that definitely... I mean, some of these discussions we're going to be having forever. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I mean, and, and thank God for that, because that's what that's how, you know, human culture is still alive. Um, and it's really about the snapshot in the moment. And I just, yeah. yeah, I want us to have the largest vision of our field. Like, I will bring that back again and again. The largest vision of our field that is an ecosystem in which we're continually curious about these words. Like, let's be continually curious about these words as opposed to what I've seen in other fields I've been a part of where the words keep people trapped and they I, keep them not evolving. I, I always come back. To, my anecdote on this is I was in the room where transmedia died, uh, which was uh, there, the, the Burbank Airport Hilton. Uh, there was some trade show and there was a room where for about six hours, it was all of the leading transmedia consultants uh, either in the room or on Skype. Uh, this was like, you know, nine years ago. And it was, it was practically a knife fight at certain points. Uh, Jay Bushman's not around. Uh, today, yeah, Jay and I Jay and I have talked about that moment from the yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if Jay, Jay, wish Jay was here because he was in that room too, and uh, it was it was stunning, and it was pretty much everyone had their own, everyone had the definition that they were pushing was because that's what supported their consulting practice, and um, yeah. you know, right after that day, like no one wanted to use it anymore because no one wanted to be that, that that person, and it just it just died out, and we literally all stopped using the term, and it was sad because it had it had potential. 
Um, all right, uh, Catherine, what have you plucked from the AMAQ? What, what, uh, what is our, our harvest? Yeah, so we've got a question from Abby. Hi, Abby. And Abby, you'll want to unmute yourself too. All right, uh, Catherine, go ahead and read Abby's yeah. question. Great, um, so uh, along the lines of changing from ticketed to subscription and thinking about being nimble with financial models, how do you think about purpose-built and site-specific physical spaces? How can we make the physical immersive experience uh, and uh, that model more financially stable? Can you clarify your question, Abby? I think I talk, I, I, I think about it for that. So can you clarify, like, how do we make, do you mean you want to make, let's say it this way. See, this is what I do where I pretend I'm going to, I'm genuinely just kind of making sure I understand your oh, question. Abby's, Abby's sorry. mic is live. Go can for you it. hear me? Now yeah, we can. I can hear yes. you now. Sorry, um, sorry. So, so like, was... was it like you want to make, I want to make, you know, an immersive live theatrical production and how does that become more sustainable? Is that no, what you sorry. mean? So, so um, in, especially sort of thinking about going into, you know, what the world looks like now post coronavirus. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about sort of just re like real estate and availability yeah. of sort of different forms of real estate um, and different kinds of spaces where things might, you know, we might be able to be think about these kinds of things um, in a way where it's like you can have multiple uh, sort of programmed experiences that are maybe the same or simultaneous in different spaces. Um, so how do we, and we've talked about this a little bit, but how do you think yeah. about <laughs> kind of like the physical build out or the digital build out of these yeah. things, um, being slightly modified now in a world where maybe these things are happening simultaneously in the same place and we can think about space in a different way. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, I happen to know, uh, Abby, uh, and she's not a plant. I didn't know, I didn't plant her hair, but <laughs> she's also an amazing leader in the space, um, from Madison Wells Media and, um, we talk about this a lot, right? So I got obsessed with um, serial spaces. Uh, like I made, I have a project that's made to distribute and can quickly deploy at functioning public libraries. I have a project that can deploy in disused areas of post offices. I have uh, a, a project that um, I right now I'm developing with a team of artists that we can put into fast food drive-throughs. Um, I think that I think that our adaptability and our resourcefulness means we have to think about space as a character. And so what characters are already distributed that we can participate with? And so yes, I think that financial model, absolutely. And then I think also Abby dealing has been you know, I, I've been on the bandwagon for the last five years that like, I'm a podcast obsessor. And so rat, why the, it, it's not that there's bad digital work happening and bad immersive work happening. There's great work happening or live immersive work, right? Or we're going to start calling it probably physical. There's like physical immersive live work. And then there's digital immersive live work. And um, the connection between the two, the transition of how we transition audience between the two is also about our financial stability. Um, we tend to kind of say there's a podcast here and over here is this live physical experience. And so I think if there were a, 
And I think the other piece of that is we have to invest in our creators and writers narratives that are big enough and deep enough to hold experiences that are uniquely happening in 20 fast food drive throughs around the country that are now disused. You know, um, I think we need to right now really think about where people are going to be ready to congregate and how they want to congregate and how we transition them from these amazing Zoom spaces where they are, where people are like, I'm connecting with people I haven't in years and frankly have the time to, right? And families are are connecting in deep ways. How do we, instead of say, oh, you did that, come do this, say, okay, you did that. Like, what is the way we transition audiences to feel safe coming back together physically? And what are unique ways we could do that? So I think it's my biggest answer is always there is a set already made, and it's not just about site specific, but also think of scalable spaces and um, build the build a depth of narrative. Don't and and the scenic will and lighting and sound and all of that is a part of narrative, not a part of bells and whistles that make you a better set. Yeah, I always think of like you know the principle of if you've built a set well, just even for like traditional theater, you know some character built that some character designed that right like and that and that plays that plays doubly so in an immersive space right you know or if it's like a natural immersive space somebody carved out the the exciting thing uh oh here goes Noah talking about star wars the exciting thing about uh you know about about (laughs) what they've done Right. First time today uh, about what they've done at Galaxy's Edge is like, you know, the, there's there's parts where you can see where they lasered out the tunnel. Right. You know, so yeah. it's like they took a natural space and then they, you know, you can see the work the characters did when it was all just like right. you know, molded concrete. It's like one person, one team did the same thing, but they've built up these layers of telling the story that way. And, and you feel the intent of the people the way, you know, it's like if you start tripping out on, you know, the way a city is. You know, like that's what an immersive space should do to you. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, this is the thing. We experience culture not in one way. We don't experience culture because we're told it. We experience culture in the way we live. And the way we live is I sit on a bench in a certain park and certain benches have that the kind of like the like dig in the seat, right? Like the seat has been worn down and you're like, oh, wow. I don't have to, I don't stand there. I'm not like, you know, I'm not saying I'm the person who's like, look at this bench in which I have sat on the seat of many others before, but like you feel that we experience it. And, and I think in immersive experiences, I I wrote my nerdy thesis on sensory symphonies. Right. And that like, the idea is we are crafting a symphony of narrative in which all of the things, words, space, what you touch, what you smell are telling pieces of the narrative because that's how living is. <laughs> um, and I think that's that's a key thing. And I think sometimes we put those pieces together separately. We think that they all do separate pieces. And I think that means it's, and, and I think it allow, it, it doesn't allow for narrative to be deep enough. Um, yeah. All right, Catherine. What are we I'm actually going to hijack um, to build off the point you just made. So in terms of this deeper narrative, how do we get there? What, what, given all that's happening in the world right now, what kinds of narratives in experiential do you think people are going to be craving after 
you know, knock on wood, all this is over. So I, um, again, three years ago when we started having these group conversations, I said the things out loud, which are, which were unpopular, which, uh, some things which are unpopular, which are, I believe we need to figure out how to make things in which people can encounter them and start from who they actually are, not who we want them to be. I think one of the beautiful things, and now I'll bring up Star Wars about that experience, is people get to be who they are. And if that means they want to cosplay and dress up, like they can, but that's not what's required of you to be more deeply in that experience. And so I think overall, the biggest thing we're going to have to figure out is how we make sure we're not telling people what to do. We're not, we're really leaning into our craft. We've got to get better at our craft. We cannot manipulate people, push them, pull them. I'm obsessive about that. The second thing in terms of narrative is you need to have more than one person writing the narratives because we actually as a field um, in the social justice or um, uh, pop culture change field, there's a lot of research around pluralistic narratives, um, which means what we've always been doing, right? It's like 12 simultaneous narratives are happening and none of those 12 being prioritized over the other. And the only way to do that deeply, and, and and right now, the world we're coming out of, we have come to see that pluralism every day. We we get on Zoom. It's not a conversation with one person. It's not one intended conversation. So I think making sure we have teams of writers who are writing different threads with an overarching kind of world And then my other feeling is like, I don't know that we're going to need stories about apocalypses. I feel, I don't, if I, if I say that personally. Yeah, those are dumb. (laughs) Yeah, we need a break, right? Like, I don't want to go into another apocalyptic experience where like everyone's died and now I'm looking for the powder, save the human race. Like, we're living it. Not going to be helpful. What I do think we need, and we have had a hard time in our field doing, is joy. We need to get better at humor. We need to get better at authentic humor. We need to get better at worlds that are as human as they are fantastical. And um, the narratives I get excited about absolutely are theatrical and fantastical, right? I'm not saying like kitchen sink dramas, because no thanks. Um, What I'm saying is... How does the kitchen sink suddenly become Zion National Park and you're exploring the world? Like, how is it? I mean, I think it's more um, uh, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe than it is uh, a post-apocalyptic. And I think even if I look at Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, we are going to have to stop taking ourselves so seriously. We are going to have to. I think comedy is our biggest weakness as a field. And when you get people laughing, they are going to engage emotionally more and they're going to feel safer. It is a physical, um, it is a physiological thing that is true. So that's my feeling of where we have to go. We have to figure out, and that's going to be hard. Like comedy is already hard. Comedy immersively is even harder. There's a reason comedians stand on a stage. Um, so you're, So we're going to have to really work at that. And I think that's going to be a survival. I think that's going to be a huge part of, who we become if we, as we survive. Catherine. Yeah, fabulous. Um, next up, we've got uh, 
Tara Oak. Hi. Hello. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how you build your team of collaborators for a given project and kind of related to that, how you seek to gather new collaborators. Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, I uh, So there's a couple of things, right? I'd be lying if I didn't. There are a couple of people who like are my ride or dies, have been with me for a long time, um, are other parts of my brain, but all of those people what is true about them is they are not intimidated or um, threatened by new thinking and new people. So the first thing is I have a policy that everyone who is a part of, um, who is a part of a core team that I may have worked for, this is not a power struggle. They're not interested in who's in charge. Um, they know that I'm going to empower them and I'm going to take care of them. Um, so I think that it's first how you start your culture. So the culture has to be a culture of there is room for everyone. There will be more projects. This is not a place of scarcity, even right now. If you approach this moment that way, even though it is a moment of scarcity, I'm not going to lie. Um, if you approach that this as, as you only can see this moment that way, um, you're creating a competition between your collaborators and that's never going to be healthy, right? I'm also incredibly transparent with people. So that means when I meet new young artists or I see an artist's work and I I will reach out, like I have no shame. I have my associates constantly looking at other people's works. Um, we read No Pro religiously, shout out to No Pro, which seems absurd, but it's true because we all better know, better be watching it. But also like I'm looking in other spaces. And so when I find artists and I think they're doing something interesting, and or if I find thinkers and I think they're doing something interesting or leaders or whatever, I meet them. Um, I have, you know, I make that a priority. And then from there, when I say I'm really transparent and honest, I don't ever, I'm learning this even more so as something that's challenging in a lot of places, but in LA in particular, I have no interest in making promises I can't keep. So like if I meet an artist, I try as hard as I can to say, hey, right now, we're not making anything new, but around this moment, I think we could start talking about a new team we're building or, you know, it's just like being transparent that allows even from the beginning to build again, that kind of trust. Um, and I think also like the thing that I haven't done as well as I would like is seeing work as much as I want. Um, because right now I'm working to build the studio to have enough space in it to build the community. Um, so yeah, so so it's about transparency, honesty, and like, also I um, I forget who the podcast is with. I made my associate listen to this podcast once. Um, some of the best things I've done for my teams is fire people before it got crazy, and that's a whole, again it goes back to the transparency and honesty. Just like saying to someone, this doesn't work. Like you're communicating differently than the people in this. It doesn't mean that you're communicating differently wrong it means that your communication is about fear and like tearing people down and i'm not interested in it um let's give ourselves a beat let's try this again in another situation um and i say that transparently because i think sometimes the worst situations i've been in is when those people have stayed on and the culture of it has seeded you know you've got a team of 30 people i've had teams of makers of 400 people and they're suddenly like 
all and like one person can change that culture in in a huge way. And so I think it's just about um yeah, it's that. It's just there's enough room at the table, just take the table out of the room. And yeah. <laughs> and then there's silence. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, Catherine, what do we have next on the, on yeah, the that, yeah. And folks, we've got about we've a got... half hour left on the schedule. So uh, we're probably getting down to the last couple of questions that will actually get answered. So if you've got something, get it in now, because uh, I'll probably close the queue pretty soon. And I'll also, um, I'll through Noah or whatever, I'm right now working on um, some articles about right now and talking about it just because I do you feel like one of the beautiful things of here was the ability in terms of meeting new collaborators to meet. And so I am deeply interested in meeting new people. So reach out and we'll figure that out if, uh, if the question doesn't happen today. Right on. Uh, so we've got NoPro's Chicago correspondent, Patrick McLean, up next. Mm. Shout out to Chicago. Where I where I where I where I started making my work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was I was obsessively looking at. Uh, it's very curious because I feel like a lot of artistic people go through the um, Chicago Athletic Club um, <laughs> and get their chops there. It's it seems to be I, clearly a building block. It's because of the owner Pat Cunningham who believes in artists, and I opened up West Loop Athletic Club years ago. But we won't talk about athletic clubs here. Sorry. I, yeah, I, no worries. Um, so my question is, um, during your time creating work throughout uh, all these years, I'm just curious, what is one of the biggest obstacles you have encountered? And kind of more importantly to my question is, in dealing with it or overcoming it, uh, what lessons did you learn or take away to hopefully add to your tool belt and use to solve any future obstacles that could come up? I mean... Uh, that itself could be 17 talks. Um, I think my friends and close family know that, um, for me, you know, I think I would say, right. It's that there are a lot of things that matter to me. Being a good leader matters to me the most. It probably matters to me more than being the best artist. Um, and in that there are times where, in this work and in this field, there are so many different needs. You know, you have a client and you have 40 hundred artists and you have whatever. And, and it's the acknowledgement that like, you will never do everything perfectly. <laughs> and all you can do is wake up in the morning and try and like, try your best and then wake up the next day and try your best. Um, and in that, like, I've also had, you know, I, I, I have survived in this field and 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 started thinking about thriving in this field because I I think some of my failures have come because I believed in the ecosystem before there was one. So believing and and functioning as if there will be more work, um, not fighting for jobs and hustling myself, but actually like finding somewhere in me the faith that this will continue to grow, believing enough in this vision that kept it evolving. But that has meant I've certainly lost jobs or been cut out of jobs um, at moments uh, for a variety of reasons, but mostly because, um, I will be honest, mostly because of me holding tight to like how I take care of my people 
and how safety matters to me and how transparency matters to me. And that's not to like pat myself on the back in any ways. It, I think it's been an Achilles heel at moments. I think for a variety of experiences I've had in my life, safety in this work for my people and otherwise is more than anything. And so I've, I've lost huge opportunities that I fought very hard for because I wasn't willing to like pretend those things weren't happening. Um, and I think that how I've gotten to the other side of it is, um, is, is, I mean, one of the great things that happened this year, and, and I don't know how it's all going to work out. Right. But like, I believed 10 years ago, I, I have the job right now. I am the head of experiential entertainment. I have a job that I believed existed and there's no, and it didn't. And and now I have it. That doesn't mean it's perfect. And I think what's gotten me here and where I am now and how that's all that experience of losing a lot over and over again and building your community is that that confidence that this field, a new field where you are speaking languages that not everyone always hears the same way. I mean, life itself, whatever, but I can be existential there, but like is going to be a roller coaster. It will always be a roller coaster. The roller coaster is the only thing you can count on. I'm sorry, like it is. So who are you who are you going on that roller coaster with? Who do you trust and how do you continue to build that ecosystem of trust? How do we treat each other well? Um and that's that's uh without me naming names and without me You know, I've had crazy shit happen. Two-story glass walls shatter because someone threw a teacup. Um and I survived and we survived. I never thought I would work again. And that was like 12 years ago. I didn't throw the teacup, you know, but I felt responsibility. So like crazy shit is going to go down and we are in the midst of crazy shit. Um, but it's, it's, it's about recognizing how to continue to build out your ecosystem and be good to each other so that you're riding that roller coaster together. And that's a huge Chicago thing. Just shot back to Chicago. Like that community of artists knows that better than most places. Catherine, great, take us. Great metaphor. I, I love that roller coaster metaphor. Um, next up, we've got a question from Vanessa Calderon. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, thanks. Uh, Thank you so much for talking about all your principles, basically. It's really awesome to hear about, and your energy is awesome. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was just wondering about, you've talked about kind of different projects you have in the works or in development, um, or even at the ready. And I'm wondering, like, where your inspiration has been coming from and how you manage so many simultaneous creations <laughs> with, like, such a broad scope. I mean, sometimes I don't manage it very well to be very transparent. Uh, um, I think that I build teams and then I uh, entrust once I build the team and we have a core. So um, if any of my former students are on here, they, they probably would roll, roll their eyes right now. But um, I believe that in every project you, you, as a team, you hone in on what is the core and what is the core relationship with audience and what is the core um, articulators of those relationship with audiences space? Is it how you use whatever it is? And, and then once that is clear, I do a lot of like, okay, go off and make and come back. And then let's share back and like, go off and make and then let's come back. And 
um, those are my happiest moments when like, I, I, I tend to say, um, don't say in front of me the thing you think is absurd and crazy because I'm going to say, okay. Like if you're not, if you're saying it, like I'm going to be like, yeah, let's go down that, that idea, you know? Um, so don't say it if you don't want me to go like, cool, think about that. Um, and so uh, that's how I do it, which is that I try to put together a lot of different teams with and and establish that core and go in and out. And the thing that's inspiring me is like, I am obsessed with how we make authentic relationships and different relationships with audience. I just said this the other day about a project we're making right now with an amazing visual artist. Um, we're like kind of like blowing out his world, but I'm really interested in not just how you look at his world, but how do you live in his world? He's made this whole universe and he almost like looks at, he looked at the sky differently and made a new constellation and we're going to get to live in those constellations. And it's not a different world. It's our world through his lens. And one of the things I said is like, what inspires me is thinking about <clears throat> how there are going to be people who go into that world who become fans and want to transform themselves and will touch everything and be everything and do it with their friends and dance with everything that they can dance with and vogue with our voguers because we've got intergalactic voguers. But like, um, there's people like myself who actually find a lot of humanity and togetherness in being an introvert in those spaces. Um, and so what inspires me a lot now is how to think about how we can be all the way, all people that people can, it's not for everyone, but that people can be who they are in a space. And how do we design spaces? How do we design experiences that way? Um, I'll say the last thing that inspires me a lot is like, I nerd out on science and neurological thinking and how sensory thinking, all that kind of stuff. And then I, and then I usually get inspired by being like, this artist is thinking about toothpaste and this artist is thinking about teeth. Like, let's put them in the same room and see what happens and talk about seven things. And then something happens. Um, and then either it sticks or it doesn't. <laughs> Please no dentist immersives though, people. Please do not take no. that as, uh, I, as an invitation for a dental immersive. Please. No, 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 no. I recently though, I will say I took an intro to woodworking class purely because I was committed to the fact that it was the only kind of cult, like personal thing I could do where someone wouldn't want to make an immersive. I was like, no one's going to want to make woodworking immersive. So yes, that's true. Let's not make dentists immersive. Good call. They already But are. if you do make a woodworking immersive, Hmm, I think I could find some fans for you. Um, next up in the queue, we've got Jake. Hi, Jake. Hi there. Um, thanks so much for talking to this. It's been great. Um, I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit to how you would go about balancing the work that you do uh, for, say, a corporate client, creating experience for them, and then how you would go about doing the work or balancing that with the work that you're going to do for yourself or as a company, just sort purely for its own sake. Yeah. So there's two things. One is um, that was a lot of my bifurcated life for the last few years. I ran a studio called MTG, which I still have, but don't isn't you know it's kind of defunct right now because I got hired at this company and did client based work. And then I also had a studio where I would do commission based work, right? And and um, and I think that the hardest part of balancing that is not 
is not letting every project need to be all things. So it's like, but figuring out what in a project is going to drive you. So like, I would say, so for certain projects I do with this project, this client-based project, we're going to experiment with this technology that we haven't gotten to use in our other creative aspects. We're going to hone our craft in that technology and make them the best this we can. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to be really good at our craft and we're not going to be precious about certain things. We're going to have integrity, but we're not going to be precious about certain things. And we're going to really explore craft in a way we haven't before. And I can look at a project I did years ago for AMC for client that definitively that project and what we experimented with allowed me and my collaborators to be ready to do a project we did um, that we built for libraries called Alexandria, which is one that still is very alive um, and allowed us to have 17 simultaneous tracks at the same time running in a, a working building while, I mean, it's pretty insane. We ran it through Slack. It's like one of the craziest, craziest things we've ever made. And we had, we had learned a lot of those tools during our client-based work. And that client was thrilled, hired us again to make something else where I staged the Revolutionary War for the show Turn. Um, so I think you balance it by letting it be exactly what it is. Um, I think client-based work is hard because you also, at least for me, I got hired a lot before people, and, and, and in a room of clients, they all think they're hiring you for something different because of what we do. So I also think we've come, by the end of my client focus time, I came to a a process of being able to really dig down into what everyone meant they wanted. Um, and that's the same thing you have to do with new work that you're developing yourself. Like, what do we want? What is this? And so I think there are some similar tools and then it lets you balance it all not being the same thing. Um, and also, you know, I also was in the process and now am thinking about how original work can have a financial model that means clients who used to be my clients can get used, put their marketing dollars into better content and already existing work. So I'm also trying to disrupt that model, which I think we've all been stuck in financially for a while. Great. Next up is Kendra Slack. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yeah, yes. hi Kendra. Hi, um, I was really loving what you were saying earlier about leadership, and I was mm. wondering if you could share a specific example, either a moment where you observed really great leadership in this field that really paid off, or maybe alternatively, uh, really poor leadership decisions that um, either way that you learned a lot from. That's a great question. Um... I will be honest in that I think, again, when we think about the field, we have to kind of broaden our thinking, what we think it is. Um, and so when I broaden that thinking, there are moments of great leadership. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to say it. Well, I'm going to say one thing and I'll say another. I, I think, and he, he can blush and you can't see it. I think Noah is a great leader. I think that Noah is thinking about a larger sense of the field. Um, and has done a lot of work to figure out how to be inclusive of a larger vision for the field. And I think that's what a leader does. I think leaders lead in a lot of different ways, but at their core, they have vision and they know how to let people into that vision. So, so Noah, 
um, who is on here and, and probably isn't saying something because I just embarrassed him. Um, and I'm not saying it because I because he's because he's here. I, I probably would I've said it otherwise. Um, and then, like, I think of uh, one of my colleagues. Um, I think of one of my colleagues uh, who is an associate of mine now, but was an assistant. And watching how she questions my leadership. Um, she's worked with me for five years and is an incredible growing leader. And in that, the thing as a leader I try to do is leave space for her to ask questions of it and challenge me. And I think that she is in that becoming a stronger and stronger leader. Um, as a leader being asked questions and asking questions, and she is as open to me asking questions of her and challenging her. Um, I think in our field, again, we are a, a field that at times um, uh, the best moments are when, I mean, like this isn't specifically our field, but a friend of ours who's a colleague I see as our field is like working with costume designers right now to get them paid $4 a mask and have that mask okayed by the design, okayed by the CDC so that those masks can actually be used at hospitals. Like that's leadership in a way that like means you're using your creativity and innovation to think that way. Um, and then I think bad leadership, like the scariest, there's leadership that I'll admit really scares me. And it's when the product and the field itself becomes a product and the not being able to acknowledge that um, people make it, that this is a field where people make things um, is dangerous. Uh, yeah. And I, I just, uh, I want to double down on, on that real fast. It's like, I think that's, that's a macro societal, you know, problem yeah. we're seeing where, you know, is <laughs> what is the product for? Is it is it the economy's sake or is it for the people? I mean, the, the number one thing that freaks me out the most is when we start talking about on the digital side of things about virtual beings and virtual influencers. And I start to wonder, you know, is there someone sitting in a hedge fund right now dreaming of the day when they can stop just having virtual influencers but have virtual consumers and just have the AIs, you know, buying commodities back and forth the way that it works on wall street where the algorithms are trading stocks and then you can just remove people from the economy altogether and i know that that is that is somebody's fantasy sure. uh, i know it's someone's fantasy because if i can imagine it then someone else can like you know dream about it um but and... i think that's noah that's the other thing right is like I think our good leadership right now, we have to acknowledge the financial, I think what you're saying, we have to acknowledge the financial component of this work. Like we have to acknowledge it and figure out how we're going to harness it and not let it, um, and, and be honest about it or yeah. it gets taken over in the way you're talking about, right? Like, I, well, it gets, I mean, yeah, I, I, it gets taken over the way I'm talking about, but also, I mean, the, the whole macro economy is sort of feels like it feels at least like it's bent that way, even though, you know, it, it always snaps like a rubber band because it is linked to, um, to what is actually essential. I mean, 
you know, I'm sorry, but like the mask is off right now on, on a macro level and, and not for us to, you know, go full political. But, you know, when suddenly grocery store clerk, clerks are essential workers, right? It's like you grow. And we and and I can say this, you know, for surety, like Lori Meeker works for Trader Joe's would probably be here in the mix today listening and asking questions. Uh, she's a member of Rogue Artists Ensemble. She's done mm-hmm. a, a wonderful piece, uh, a, 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 a Christmas cookie, uh, Welcome to Metal Arc Falls thing that she like beta <laughs> tested uh, in. It, it was, it's, a, it's, it's like, what if a Hallmark, you know, romantic movie came to life in immersive form? And she did like a little three-day test of it uh, at the Greenway Theater, you know, here in LA. And, you know, uh, full disclosure, I, I was her consultant. I got paid to like, you know, shepherd her through some stuff and like you know you know help her feel good about doing this um but it was it was absolutely adorable and and looking forward to it coming back but she can't be here right now because she's an essential worker she's like doing a check stand or bagging someone's groceries or stocking shelves full of the toilet paper that will still be gone in in 20 seconds and we know that the people and the interaction and the human centeredness, like that's, that's what an economy actually is. And so demonstrating what the value is, I mean, this is something we've been struggling even before everything broke out is, you know, how to get the audience to pay for, you know, what it really costs. Uh, and at the same time, honoring the fact that people are coughing up, sorry, uh, wrong metaphor these days, uh, that people are, are, are putting maybe a lot of money into something. What value are they, are they, are, is the audience getting out of it? Um, but, but I think it's a, I think, so Noah, I think about this a little differently, um, not similarly and differently. Um, yes, all of the things you're saying, I, many of the things you're saying, I think are true, but I, I think, I think the problem is we were looking at that ticket struggle as a binary struggle as a, why we need people to pay tickets for what it really costs. And I actually think my belief, my deep belief is, 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 is as we figure out models that include ticket sales and other things that sustain a show and a project and, and think unilaterally about the way we have financial opportunities in the work we do, that we are putting our create, being, business can be creative. And I think that we keep it separated in some way at times when we're in our field, we think of it as a separate challenge. And so, A, yes, the grocery workers, like, you know, no one's disagreeing with that and no one's disagreeing with um, what necessity is. Um, I do get, I do believe that the, the, the conversation around how much should we sell tickets for? What will people buy tickets for? Like, because I came up in theater and around nonprofits, like I, I and then on broad, and then Broadway and and in New York is like that conversation is never going to win because we have to raise the price to make our value, and then people can't afford to, um, and then people can't afford to to do it, and then. Uh, you know, and, and then we have a limited audience and the audience can't grow and all of those things are true. And so I have big questions for us to, to sustain in thinking about alternative ways we are engaging money in, 
a financial sustainability that is not reliant on tickets as showing us our value. Um, and I think that I think that's going to be a huge key to not only our surviving, but our thriving as a field, um, because the ticket game, it will be there, but it, it, it has never won. It's just never, I can't look at a place where that has been successful unless you're Hamilton and Hamilton happens once a generation and you can't, you know, um, does that make sense? No, I'm not sure. I think it's oh, no, no, it, no, it, it does. It does. And, and, and the last time Hamilton happened, it was cats and look what, look what that became. So, um, <laughs> I love cats when I was a kid. I, they came out and ate my candy out of my hand. It was my first. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Shut up. It was a different time. It was a different time. Now, it requires, now yes. it requires a different kind of candy to watch cats. That's really oh, cool. okay. Yeah. Catherine, rescue us for the AMAQ. All right. All right. Um, this might be one of the last one or two questions we get. So, okay. Spencer Williams, you are up. Hi, Spencer. Spencer there. Hello. I see Spencer's mic is open, but I'm not hearing anything. So Catherine, go ahead and read Spencer's All right. Question. Yeah. So what is the alternative to the ticket game you mentioned? Examples, how to's, I think, uh, you know, some sort of concrete next steps is probably what everyone's scrambling for. I think it's, um, so the way I think about it is I think about um, why and how people spend money in different ways. So like, for example, I think that um, the way that podcasts have thought about a financial model has been interesting. Um, they have a combo of memberships to certain additional content. They have, they also are doing work where brands authentically are integrated in. Um, I think that rather than us building huge pop-ups, which I think the end of that is is. Is, I think this is going to really challenge that. Um, building big pop-ups for brands, we actually, very soon, we need to make the depthful, compelling, experiential shows and products that brands want to be a part of without headlining them. So they get a commercial, quote-unquote, in it without it being um, selling out to them, without them being able to run the content. Um, I think that that's not a perfect answer. I think also like, I think that um, uh, different, making sure your work has different layers of integration. So I may be able to integrate and participate on a digital platform with it. And then the live component of it, I think as Abby and I discussed earlier is scalable and more affordable and is happening and popping up in, um, in uh, drive-throughs around the country, and so the bar, the the cost of that is low, and the cost of that mostly is going to the creatives who are a part of it in the live component. And so the ticket price is actually then functioning and making that work, and so you're not reliant on it. I think it's about though matching where there are price points um, that are in your creativity, and and maybe that's a vague way of thinking about it because it's there isn't one answer there are a lot of different answers like i think about rather than us thinking of merch as oh and then people buy merch which like you know cool um 
I actually think the assumption that people are going to love it so much they buy is not necessarily us thinking as creatively. What if, you know, the more our merchandise moments are connected to more participation and deeper participation, that's exciting to me. Um, I think we have to think creatively about like, look at every single place where there has been a price point and think about how it gets people deeper experiences. I mean, it's fundamentally fandom, right? And yeah. I end up speaking and talking on a lot of fandom because this is the way I think about our different financial models. And then those costs, the ticket, the merch, those things, the price point can be lower, which means more accessibility. But ultimately, you're also being thoughtful about how the cost works. Um, I'm not saying the work should be free because it shouldn't. Um, I also think we have to think about moments where, we, you know, at Woodshed Collective, where I ran, I was one of the artistic directors for five years, we did a lottery and we had free tickets. And then twice a week, we had high end tickets for people. Um, and people could pay those high price tickets. I mean, it's socialism, right? So I think my brother-in-law would correct me if I were wrong, but it's something about like, also, who is your audience and how can you think differently about making a version of it that creates access? The more access you create, the more fans you create, the more fans you create, the more other material people are going to spend money on. Yeah, I think I think what I always want to caution people about is that it's it's really easy to put the cart before the horse in some of these strategies. And yeah. I liken it to when people front load their lore yeah. Uh, no one likes an exposition dump at the beginning of a story. Uh, I hate it. But if you have that lore accessible to folks, uh, if they get hooked by your characters, if they get hooked by your aesthetic, they're going to dive deep. And so it's fine to have it. Just don't don't hand someone a manual and say, now read all this before you show up. Look, there's going to be five, five you know, percent of your fan base uh, at best is going to be really excited that they have a new rule book to consume and feel like they have a leg up on everyone before they enter the thing. But the vast majority of people are not going to want to do that. I always think of the model for me, <laughs> shocking. I go back to star Wars. Uh, yep, comes yep, to the I thought that's what was going to happen. Yeah. And so it's like the toys were not available in 1977, yeah. they sold people a gift certificate for the toys. Uh, and yet, you know, why does it still exist now? Because of the toys versus Willow, which came out in the 80s, also mm -hmm. enjoyed that movie. But I knew, I knew Willow was going to be a failure because three months before, you know, the, the movie showed up, the toys were on the shelves. And I was thinking, and I'm a kid at the time. And yeah, I'm thinking, I was like, no, you were already thinking that way as a kid. That's yeah, amazing. I was. I was a weird kid. I, I read in junior high. I read uh, the the history of McDonald's and how it was formed. Like I was I was I, there's another what version think, of me that's an MBA. He's what I think you're saying. What's important is what about what you're saying, too, is that like the depth of story has to exist for all of this to be true. So when you're asking about Absolutely. these alternative financial models, if what you're doing is just replicating the same thing over and over and it's merch like or it's whatever, the, that's what I mean. Like invest it in your creativity, like deepen the the trunk of like, the other metaphor I get excited about is like, prior to this moment right now, our field, whether it were art installation, flashing lights, Britney Spears immersives, um, 
you know, Star Wars, whatever it was, we were growing really fast, right? And you, everywhere you looked, it was immersive and experiential. It was like a big forest of all these trees. But a lot of those trees, because we were very quickly trying to plant them, didn't have deep enough roots. And so the moment that a tick, that this moment happens right now, or a tick, and no one could have, that's not fair because this moment could not have been imagined. But the moment that there is uh, in not LA, but like bad weather, or the moment that there is somebody who wants to go deeper and there's not enough material there, literally the tree falls over and it doesn't sustain. And so invest right now in this moment you have right hand, invest in the project you have deepening those roots and that's narrative roots so that, and that can be narrative roots and the it's, it's product can look like installation art. It doesn't mean you have to go out and make stories, but those narrative roots and core roots of storytellers and core roots of narrative deep underneath are going to mean that your monetization has a multitude of ways to exist. I keep thinking of all the TV shows and the, yeah. the streaming shows that are on a forced hiatus right now. Or, or I think about the fact that like, you know, the, the Robert Patterson Batman movie is on hiatus right now. And all I can think of is like, I hope someone's taking a script pass. Like, you know, I hope yeah. they take the opportunity of being shut down to not just be like, okay, we'll get back to it. Ignore, spend two weeks orient yourself, get calm. There was a lot of talk in the salon yesterday, people saying like, I don't want to feel the pressure to create right now. Totally take the breath, grab that breath, center yourself in the moment. And then because we can't pick up the other tools, it is about deepening the story. It is about layering that in. I'll be honest. And my colleagues who are on here can attest to this. I've spent the last two weeks working like crazy, not deepening, just trying to solve a lot of how do we keep sustaining and thinking that way? Because I think we will. And I think I'm fortunate in that I'm a part of a company that is right now capable of being nimble enough to, to use this moment to deepen the work that we already had in development to go deeper. Right. But that going deeper also takes the You have to not be in a panic mode and my coping mechanism is work. So um, I am now going into the next couple of weeks, I'm going to do, I'm going to do exactly what I'm advising here, which is like, take a breath, look at the range of projects we have and spend time going deeper so that when we come out of this, we've done that work. Um, and it's hard to do. It's hard to do when you feel unsettled. So I, I own that too. Um, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, folks, it is 1230. Uh, We have reached the end of our official journey here. Uh, In a moment, I'm going to, you know, switch off a few machines and whatnot. Uh, (laughs) Here's here's what happens next. Uh, At one o'clock, we're going to be back in here for the industry report uh, preview with Ricky and Sarah. Uh, that's a half hour block. So they're going to give uh, they're going to give a sneak peek and we'll take some questions. So there will be AMA format that goes on for just about a half an hour. It can go a little bit longer, but at uh, two o'clock is when town hall is. So we will be clearing the room as they do at Comic-Con, uh, uh, you know, in time to do, uh, to set up for town hall. Uh, that's the big one. That's going to be a two hour long salon session, uh, grappling with uh, the, the times and the issues of the day. Catherine will be your host for the 
uh, industry report, uh, I will probably be uh, uh, behind the scenes working on on the town hall stuff. So thank you all for joining. Uh, we will be unserver muting people. That's another thing we've got to do. But feel free to hang out in the lobby here so you're closer. Or if you want to go all the way out to the cafe, uh, the cafe is now serving whatever's in your kitchen. All right, Michael, thank you again so much. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you? Um, the best thing to do right now is you can go to my website, michaelterragarver.com, but you can also, because uh, Category 41, we are just, we will be launching our website soon, or you can email me um, at michael at category41.com. And Michael is M-I-K-H-A-E-L with a big shout out to my parents who made it complicated. You can also follow me on Instagram at at MTG photo. Um, and I believe, uh, we category 41, we are on LinkedIn and I think we have a Facebook. Um, we're just, we're in the, 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 the underground moments of, of growing. But, um, also I would just say like, uh, please reach out to me. Um, this is a time where I really mean this about our ecosystem. Um, I am now learning to look at my direct messages on Instagram. I never did before. So, uh, if you follow me at MTG photo and direct message me, I will do my best to, to get back to you if that's easier. Um, uh, yeah. Thank you guys so much. Thanks Noah. And, um, I can't wait, uh, to do more of this and, and to find a time when we're in person and, 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 uh, uh yeah, looking at the future together. So, um, stay safe, everybody, please. I can't wait myself. All right. Catch you soon, everybody. Once again, I want to thank Michael for being our guest, Catherine for running the AMAQ, and everyone who asked a question for making the show what it was. We do AMAs in the Here Discord uh, about once a week these days. There's also a TeamSpeak show with the editorial team, which we kicked off this week and we'll probably do again. Those you can listen to live if you're a uh, badge holder for here or a Patreon backer at patreon.com slash nopersinium. The TeamSpeak show is on an RSS feed that is for backers only. It's part of our irregular series, uh, as it were. And uh, more more of that as time goes on, uh, as we go forward, most likely. Because um, uh, I like talking into microphones. Okay. Uh, there's a million different things going on. We've got a bunch of reviews in the queue. We've released a bunch of reviews this week. I did a column this week, which was the uh, capstone to the uh, now playing uh, uh, Immersive for Indoor Kids newsletter, which is the old North American newsletter repurposed. You can find the column on the website right now. You can also um, sign up for the North American newsletter if you want to get the latest of the remote show stuff delivered to your door, as it were. Um, if you want to help us out and uh, keep me alive, because yes, it's, this is, m- m- the money goes to me, patreon.com slash <clears throat> no proscenium. Our sustaining backers are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Paul F., Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurston, Sam Kinkin, Sidney Guillory, Jeremy Charles Hahn, and Brittany. The Patreon is doing the best it's ever done. It is still far from where we need it to be, and these were crazy times. Put that put that puzzle together how you will. 
I don't want to say anything more about it at the moment. It's too much to think about sometimes. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Um, I miss all of your faces. <laughs> and uh, I'll leave it at that. Because this is the seventh time I've tried to record this ending, and every single other one went off the rails. So, until next time, I'll see you in the cloud. <laughs>